All right, good evening, good evening. I appreciate you being patient. We had some technical issues getting started on time tonight again. So, uh, again, we're excited for you to be with us, excited about what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, John Mark is out of town, and so uh, he normally plays the guitar for the praise team. So we're just going to uh, pray out into the Word tonight. So, uh, anyway, good things coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life and peace that we have in you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you've freely given to us. Thank you, Lord, for the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. And, Lord, I thank you for uh, helping uh, those who are listening to bring their hearts to attention. Hear these things, Father, uh, from uh, a humble heart. Receive with meekness your engrafted word, Lord, that will renew our minds and change our lives forever. Thank you for good things tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So let's uh, jump in tonight just quick review from what we talked about last week. We said that uh, Jesus came to do uh, two things for you. Amen. Let's see what we got going here if we can't get the output working right on this. Amen. All right. According to uh, John the Baptist, greatest prophet of, uh, born of a woman, Jesus came to do two things for you. He came to take away your sin. He came to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, we said last week that more confusion, more disagreement, and more division uh, exists in the body of Christ over these two things than any other doctrines in the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can just about look at the denominational lines within the body of Christ uh, and, and see that those lines are drawn according to differences in opinion, belief uh, about what these two things are and about what these two things mean. Um, we also introduced the concept last week of battleground truth. And what we said about battleground truth is that, you know, the devil doesn't want you to know anything uh, about our Father, anything about his word, anything about his love, anything uh, from his word, any truth from his word. But there are certain things that uh, he, uh, you know, garrisons around and fights uh, more than anything else. And when it comes to the two things Jesus came to do for you, uh, this is where the enemy really focuses his efforts to keep us confused and divided. Uh, so the term battleground truth, and it's pretty clear again when we, when we say that there's so much confusion and disagreement uh, over those uh, two things. Now, last week, I'm not going to go back and review all these, but last week we, we looked at 12 indisputable truths. And, and in a lot of ways, this was um, a review of things that we've been talking about now for weeks and we just kind of broke them down into 12 statements of truth that are supported by multiple verses in the Bible both Old Testament and New Testament so by indisputable uh, what we mean by that is is common ground things that again the Bible says so if you're going to disagree with this you're going to have to disagree uh, with something that the Word of God uh, says explicitly and what we see from those 12 indisputable truths is that they all point to uh, a single conclusion, and that is when Jesus saves us, uh, he saves us, according to Hebrews, and, and again, the principle is not just within the book of Hebrews, he saves us to the uttermost. And this means that he saves us entirely, he saves us completely, he saves us wholly, and he does so forever. Um, again, not my words, not my opinion, this is, uh, the, the words that our Father chose when He breathed uh, His Word to communicate to us what these things are and what these truths mean, right? Now, praise God. 
Um, so I'm, I'm going to, normally when I teach this class, uh, it's, it's all out effort to get it into two hours. <laughs> so obviously there's some things that we're going to have to just refer to tonight instead of putting every verse on the screen, all right? But I want to take the time for just a moment, and I'm going to go quick uh, with this. But if you, if you look at, um, and we're just going to stay within the book of Hebrews, because the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, tonight um, is in Hebrews chapter 6. So I'm going to show you, uh, before we dig into Hebrews 6, and, and really, I think, have some revelation change our lives, I want to I show you just within the book of Hebrews. Now, we could go outside the book of Hebrews to things that Jesus said, things that prophets said, things that other apostles said, things that um, uh, the apostle Paul wrote about. And we've done that, you know, in the course of our study. But, again, I'm just trying to show you within this one book um, things that are before and after the sixth chapter and what we see in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews um, concerning uh, our salvation. And so, again, real quick, like I'm, I'm going to go through these fast, so if you don't have time to look them all up, just jot them down, or obviously these things are recorded. You can go back and look at it later. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says that he who sanctifies those who are being sanctified are all of one. It means we all came from the same source, for which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. In chapter 5, verse 9, it speaks of what Jesus suffered in verse 8, and having been perfected through that suffering, he became the author of, and notice it says eternal salvation to all who obey him, to all who obey him, author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let's keep going. Chapter 7, verse 25, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, save to the uttermost, we've already covered what that means completely, entirely, wholly, thoroughly, forever, all right? Now, chapter 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained what kind of redemption? Again, eternal redemption. Now, chapter 10, verse 10, uh, by that will, speaking the will of his Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. We have been sanctified once and for all. Now, let's just put the brakes on right there. We could go on and on with this. But what I'm wanting you to see is these uh, specific words and phrases that are used. Um, how about eternal redemption, perfected forever, uh, eternal salvation, saved from wrath. We said that that, that wrath, um, that's out of Romans, but again, saved from wrath means eternal damnation, eternity in hell, um, sanctified once and for all, and then again back to saved to the uttermost. So, does the Bible say these things? Clearly, the Bible says these things. And does it use these words? And yes, it uses these words. And if we took the time, uh, and we have in a lot of these, to, to go into the original language, um, we see that it communicates these things even uh, in, a, in a more solid way uh, than their English um, equivalents. Okay? Um, so, um, uh, anything that we find in the Bible that would seem to contradict these things um, either has um, an explanation or the Word of God uh, contradicts um, himself. So, said another way, and, and for those of you who are new to this study, I, I almost wish you know, you'd 
put this on pause and go, go back to what we said last week. Uh, that's okay. Just stay with us tonight. You, if you still have questions after tonight, you can go back because we answered some things last week that I think are, are critical to the foundation, uh, you know, for a foundation of what we're going to be talking about this evening. Um, but again, just based on these verses, it seems like the Bible is talking about um, a salvation that is eternal, all right? Now, again, you know, people say, Pastor Mark, are, are you teaching once saved, always saved? And some people like that, depending on what side of this they're on. Other people get very offended at that. I told you last week, and I'll tell you again this week, um, I, I, I am, but I prefer to use the terminology once born, always born, because the salvation that we received is not just something that was, was given, um, you know, in some simple, shallow way. Uh, but the salvation we received, we received because we were born a second time of an incorruptible seed, a seed that cannot be corrupted and, and therefore has produced within us an indestructible heredity. Now, <clears throat> you say, well, Pastor Mark, if, if that's what you're telling us and if that's what we believe, why do so many other people believe something different and will actually use Bible verses to support their side of this argument or, or this side of, of this doctrine uh, you know, while you have your verses and, and use them on your side uh, of this discussion or argument. Okay? So again, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, but remember, this is why we started last week with 12 indisputable truths. And we could have made 24 indisputable truths that all uh, point toward this idea that once we're born and once we become one with God, once the seed of his life is within us, that that is a permanent or an eternal uh, condition, that, that, we, that we have been uh, born of his seed, that we've been perfected forever, that, that we've received eternal redemption, we've received eternal salvation. And, and there's even other verses we could have turned to tonight or looked at tonight, mentioned tonight, in the book of Hebrews alone that speak of the eternal nature of, of the work uh, that Jesus has done in us and the grace that we have uh, received uh, from him. But again, let's go back to it. You say, well, Pastor Mark, there, there are places in the Bible that seem to speak opposed to that, that seem to contradict that, all right? So listen to me, please. This is, this is if, if you're ever going to come to the knowledge of the truth, remember we said last week, you've got to begin by getting a hold of what you know is true, Okay. What, what is indisputable, what is uh, irrefutable, what is absolute in the mouths of multiple witnesses in the Word of God. And then you take the more difficult passages that seem to contradict that. Okay? Now, if there is, notice I use that word seem, if there is a contradiction, then we've got a problem, right? Because God's contradicting himself, and we know, of course, that he's not the author of confusion, and he does not contradict himself. But the, the question boils down to this. Either there is an answer for those passages that seem to refute an irrefutable truth, right? Um, or uh, there's a contradiction. So because God doesn't contradict himself, our Father is perfect and, 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 and is in perfect alignment and agreement, then that tells me there has to be, absolutely must be, an answer for these seeming contradictions. Now, <clears throat> because I don't think I'm going to be able to get all this in tonight, I'm going to take a deep breath, I'm going to slow down for a minute, and I'm going to lay some groundwork. Now, for those of you who are getting a little worked up about once born, always born, eternal redemption, eternal salvation, let's take a breath and let's step away from that subject for a moment and let me show you from the Word of God 
using another subject um, that seems to have contradictions you know, within the Word of God concerning this. Um, and, and let me show you how those um, uh, can be cleared up with a greater and better understanding. And so here's a, here's a classic example. James chapter 1 and verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Right? Now, <clears throat> the unique thing about that word tempt is the same word translated tempt uh, is also the same word translated test, is the same word translated trial. So what he's saying here is, let no one say when he is tested, tempted, or tried, I'm being tested, tempted, or tried by God. For God cannot be tested, tempted, or tried by evil, nor does he himself test, tempt, or try anyone. Now, that's pretty straightforward, that's pretty absolute, but notice we have lots of people in, our, in, in the church world today um, that, are, that are often talking about God testing them, and God trying them, and God tempting them, and God putting them in, in, into some uh, you know, test situation or, or temptation situation and, and these sorts of things. They even misquote a passage right, that says with every temptation, with every test and trial, God will make a way of escape. People take that verse and, and erroneously say God won't put more on you than you can bear. Again, completely wrong. He is not, God is not your adversary. You have an adversary. He's the devil. Jesus identified him as that. And he is the source of your adversity, not your father. It's the enemy who wants to blur these lines. It's the enemy that wants to keep us confused, right? Because if, if God is the one that's doing this to us, um, then we should just lay back and take it because as some propose, he's doing it for, for your good. He's doing it or allowing it. I love that right there. He's allowing it. Like that would stand up in a court of law, right? He's allowing it for your good, for your benefit, all right? So again, let's go back to it. The Bible says no matter how many people say it, no matter how many people are in their church, no matter how many television networks they're on, right? If they say God is testing you, tempting you, and trying you, they're doing the very thing the Word of God says not to do in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he's tested, tempted, or tried, I'm being tested, tempted, or tried by God. All right? Now, that's in James chapter 1, verse 13. And so I began to research these things out, study these things out many, many years ago, probably 15, 18 years ago. I, I, I began to look at these things because, again, this to me uh, was opposite to what I was, was told by a lot of uh, pastors and teachers uh, growing up, I was fed that, that lie that, that God is somehow doing these things, allowing these things, uh, harmful things, destructive things in my life to make me a better person, to, to, to perfect my faith. That, that I, this was my favorite one right here, that, that God is, uh, is doing these things or allowing these things because He wants to know how much faith I have. Well, the Bible clearly says that He gave me the faith that I have. How is it that He knows everything, but He doesn't know how much faith He gave me? Again, see, these things, if you start really thinking through, they don't hold water. They don't add up. And by the way, if, if, if hard times made us better people, we ought to all be really good people by now, as many hard things as we've been through, right? And so even some of the passages that I would hear sermons from, you know, about the storm and when we're in the storm and how, how God sends the storms of life, you know, well, what did Jesus do when he was in storms? Um, he rebuked him. He told him to shut up, lay down, and be still. And do and you realize that if, if his father had sent that storm, allowed that storm, was behind that storm in any way, that Jesus just rebelled against his father and rebuked him? 
No, see, the reality of it is Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one behind destructive weather. He's the one that tries to steal, kill, and destroy. Only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and if he can manipulate weather patterns to do that, as he often does, right, then we see that those destructive things come. And yet people get on television and say that tornadoes are the finger of God. Heaven help us. We've got to get these things straight, right? So let no man say... When he's tested, tempted, or tried, I'm being tested, tempted, or tried by God. For God himself cannot be tested, tempted, or tried by evil, nor does he himself test, tempt, or try anyone. So we've got to understand who's behind these things. He goes on to say that we're tested, tempted, and tried when we're drawn away of our own desires. It's, it's when we start putting things we want ahead of what God has for us and what he wants for us. But now, let's, let's take this simple thing. Again, I'm going to take my time tonight. I had just about decided I wasn't going to do this part, but I just feel prompted to do it, all right? So, so you take this verse, but then you go over into the book of Genesis, and, and, and you see where the Bible clearly says that God did test, or God did tempt um, Abraham. And it's like, well, wait a second. God, you said never say that you're behind the, the, the testing or the tempting, and yet the Word of God says that you tested, tempted Abraham. So notice now, on the surface, it seems like we have two verses that are contradicting one another because they seem to be saying opposite things. So anytime you're studying the Scripture and, and you seem to have two verses that are in, in opposition or contradiction to one another, there has, there's always an answer. There's always an explanation. Always an explanation. Even if you don't know what that explanation is or answer is, uh, you know, immediately. That's why people always, what about Job? What about Job? What about Jesus? Right? Again, you know, what people interpret from that uh, seems to be in complete contradiction to who Jesus revealed our Father to be. So either there's a contradiction, there's an explanation, and there's an explanation. All right? But let's go back to, to Abraham. Most of the time, the explanation is going to be in a mistranslation. A misunderstanding based upon a, 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 a mistranslation or a failure to understand the translation. Now remember, we're going to at least try to roll up our sleeves and get started in Hebrews 6 tonight. But that's, he, why Hebrews 6, Pastor Mark, why do you keep talking about Hebrews 6? Hebrews 6 is the one, is the, is the passage that so many people point to as the gold standard that proves from the Bible that we can lose our salvation. And again, it's based upon a lack of understanding of what Hebrews 6 really says and really means. But before we go there, I'm just going to show you again an example, an example of how this works using a completely different subject uh, from salvation. So, God did tempt Abraham. If you go into the original language, the Hebrew language, the Bible wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew and Greek. You go into that original language, you see the same word that was translated by the translators from the Hebrew into our English word uh, attempt or test could have also just as easily been translated venture. Not God did test or tempt Abraham, but God did venture him. Now what does that, what does that mean, venture? Well, it, 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 think of a venture capitalist. This is someone who puts a lot on the line now uh, in, in order to have gains in the future. So when it says God did venture Abraham, how did God venture him? God called him to take his 30-year-old son, put uh, uh, wood on his back, carry him up a mountain, and then sacrifice him, right? This was the venture that God took him on. Now, if you understand that God and Abraham were in covenant, blood covenant with one another, and if you understand that a blood covenant means anything God asked of his covenant uh, partner Abraham, 
that he was obligating himself to do in the future, right? So do you see how obvious this is? There came a day when, when Father God took his 30-year-old son, put wood on his back, and he walked up a mountain. But instead of uh, there being a, lamb, a ram provided in the thicket, Jesus was that sacrifice for all of us. So it's not that God was tempting or testing Abraham. God knew what kind of faith Abraham had, right? But, but he's, he's, he's bringing him into a situation, right, uh, to, to, to literally obligate himself and communicate to us what it is that he was and, and, and did, was willing to do, and ultimately did do for you and me. Now, I'm saying all this, um, so I'm teaching these things, right? I, I taught on these things for, for uh, months, um, and, and yet there was still one passage. There was one passage in, in the Bible that um, I, I, it, I knew that it contradicted, at least it seemed to contradict, let no one say that I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Um, and the, the, the amazing thing about this was it, it seemed to come from the lips of Jesus himself. And remember, that's, that's, the, um, that's the supreme court of the word of God, right? The, what's written in red. And so if you remember when Jesus taught us to pray, Jesus, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes through that prayer and he says for us, instructs us to pray to our Father and ask our Father to not lead us into temptation. Well, so again, people who were disagreeing with the things that I, or maybe not disagreeing, but like me, they had, they, they had questions as well, right? Um, it's like, okay, Pastor Mark, if what you're saying is true, then why did Jesus tell us to pray and ask our Father not to lead us into temptation, to not lead us uh, in, in, into a place? If, if He doesn't do this, why is it that Jesus told us to pray that, that Father God um, would not do it? And so, I'll just be honest with you, th th I didn't have an answer. I had a brother ask me a question uh, this morning that I didn't have an answer for, right? But I told him I'd pray about it and I'd search it out. And, and so... Um, I just kept chipping away at this thing, but I, 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 I never could, um, you know, come to any satisfactory answer. But I knew, again, I know that Father God's not, not contradicting Himself, right? And, and the thing that, that really, uh, I guess, didn't make sense to me, if you think about it, is um, if, if as some propose that Father God leads us into these things to help us and perfect us, it, then, then it didn't make sense to me that Jesus would tell us to ask Him not to do it. In other words, if it's something God does, Father God does, you know, puts us through, puts us in some you know, terrible situation because He's trying to make us better people uh, for our good, then, then what is Jesus doing telling us to ask Him not to do something that would make us better people? I just, again, I never could uh, get settled on that. So um, I, I was... I just kind of moved on from it, you know, and I just, Lord, I trust you. I know that one day you'll show me these things, and, and, and so I'm just going to. So I was, I was praying in the sanctuary one day, not even praying about it, not even thinking about this, and, and just, uh, just that still small voice inside of me, the Holy Spirit said, you need to check the, um, the punctuation. And, and he that just checked the punctuation. And when he said check the punctuation, I knew immediately again, it's him connecting these things in my mind. I knew immediately what he was talking about, that I needed to check the punctuation. I needed to check the punctuation um, and, and, the, uh, and, the, and, and the grammar, if you will, that goes along with that in the Greek uh, 
where it says, lead us not into temptation. And so I got up from my prayer time, went to my office, and uh, started looking through uh, the books and resources um, that I have. Now, what I found, because I have a Bible that actually does this, I, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, but I have good resources that really help me study and break into it. I found this, uh, this uh, abbreviation, A-O-S-I, um, was there uh, uh, by that phrase. I have a Bible that, that puts the punctuation there, and then you go to a key that tells you what that punctuation is. Now, the A-O-S-I stands for, come on now, stay with me because this is going to help. This is going to bless you, I'm telling you. So the A-O-S-I stands for the Aorist Subjunctive Imperative. The Aorist Subjunctive Imperative. Now, <laughs> that's English, but it might as well have been Greek to me. I didn't know what Aorist Subjunctive Imperative meant. So, but I knew the Holy Spirit, man, he was, he was with me, he was on me. And so I, I started digging more to understand what the Aorist subjunctive imperative tense was what that uh, punctuation was how the sentence was structured okay so listen to me please this um, uh, uh, tense on a verb means do not do what you are not doing right do not do what you are not doing and I thought well wait a second I you know and so back in those days, John Mark was, was pretty young, you know, young and, and, um, and so again, the Holy Spirit, he's just, you know, I set my heart to know and he's, he's revealing it to me, right? So here's, here's the way to understand aorist subjunctive imperative, which means a verb, do not do what you are not doing, right? So, you know, obviously little boys and girls, but boys especially, they love to run in church. And this is the big building and long hallways and, and, uh, and so... You know, it's just something about running and, and, and these kinds of things. And so if, if, a, if a child is running, they're actually in the act of running, and you say, don't run, okay, uh, you're asking them to stop doing something they're already doing, okay? But if I walk in the door with my son, and other children are, we're, you know, of course he's grown now, but in those days, other children are running, right, which means he could be, you know, like inclined to go run with them, and if I look at him and I say, don't run, okay, don't run in the church, he, notice I've just told him not to do something that he's not doing. I'm saying don't run. Not because he's running and I'm telling him to stop, not because he's running and this is something, you know, that, that he's doing that he needs to stop doing, right? So when, when Jesus said this, he used the verb tense of a or a subjunctive imperative. In other words, he's... he's He's saying that when we pray, and, and notice now how important this is. He's saying that, that when we pray, that we should, we should recognize that it's not our Father's uh, nature, it's not His character, it, it's not who He is to lead us into temptation. But what is His character? What is His nature? His character and nature is to deliver us from evil. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you how close... The translators were um, in uh, in in translating this. Okay, so instead of lead us not into temptation, they missed it by um, one letter. Our Father who art in heaven leads us not into temptation, but delivers us from evil. Our Father 
does not lead us in a... In other words, this, is, this was what Jesus was trying to say to us in this, in this model prayer. Notice, prayer is a part of spiritual warfare. The prayer is, is, is not just its communion and fellowship with Father God, but, but remember, we pray, we make our requests known, we receive from Him by faith through the mechanism and machinery of faith and prayer, believing and praying, all these other things. And so, you know, within this model prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, He was saying that we, we need to acknowledge that our Father leads us not into temptation. He, it's, it's, it, we're saying, don't do something you never do. Right? He leads us not into temptation, but He delivers us from evil. Okay? Now, amen. I'm just, I'm just trying to show you here how we can, we can just accept traditionally held beliefs about things. Um, you know, we, can, we can get confused based upon you know, uh, 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 an incomplete or an inaccurate translation of the original text. Um, and, and, and see, you say, well, well, Pastor Mark, why, you know, why would that happen? You, you know, you, I've even had people criticize me. They say, you shouldn't tell people things like that. It, it'll cause them to question the sacred text. Well, our Father is sacred. He breathed His Word, inspired His Word through holy men of old, right? And they, they wrote that verse, that passage, not in English, right? They wrote it in a different language. And so, like, like, take the word trunk for a moment, okay? Trunk can, can be the place you put your suitcase. It can be the nose of an elephant. It can be the base of a tree. Uh, it can be the thing at the foot of your bed with mothballs and blankets in it. You see, in other words, a, a trunk can mean a lot of different things, right? One word in, in, in any language can have multiple meanings, multiple uses. And so, as, as they're going along translating these things, you come to these words... Is it test? Is it tempt? Is it try? Is it venture? You see? And so they got, they got to make a choice. And so clearly a lot of religiously minded people believe that God tempts us and tests us and tries us. But that is absolutely not what the Word of God teaches us, reveals to us. Okay? Now, remember James was raised in the household with Jesus. And he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But boy, once, once he realized, he, he became a force. And now you've got this whole life experience that he had with Jesus, right? This revelation, this understanding. Uh, and so notice how our Father, he has this in the Word, but just to make it clear, he says through his servant and apostle James, let no one ever say, when you're being tested, tempted, or tried, you're being tested, tempted, or tried by God. Amen. All right, now... Praise the name of the living God. Okay, I tell you what. Let's. Um, so let's. Thank you, Jesus. Um, so full disclosure. All right. Um, I. Uh, I started out on the other side. What I now know to be the wrong side. Um, of this discussion about salvation, okay? Um, I, was, I was raised in a denomination that um, taught me uh, that my salvation was eternal, but they also taught me that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not for today. And even that 
speaking in tongues was of the devil, right? Now, um, when I was 12 years old, I went, my family, supernatural intervention in our family, um, we went to a Pentecostal denomination, and that's when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in unknown tongues. And I learned a lot of things that Sunday night, and one of the things I learned is that an experience beats an argument every time. And so, you know, I had people tell me after that that I was not, that I did not, but again, I knew what had happened to me. I knew how it had literally transformed me and changed me, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But here is the mistake that I made because my, Pente my Pentecostal brothers told me that um, what the other denomination taught me about salvation was wrong that if I sinned after I was saved, I was just as bound for hell as I was before I ever called upon the name of the Lord to receive salvation. Now, because they were right about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I took the assumption that they were right about my salvation and, and, and that um, it was something that I, that I could lose, which set me on a pathway of many years the, the Passion Translation uses the, the, the phrase, uh, I think it's in Romans 8, of, of um, you know, this whole sense of never being good enough. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I just felt like that God was always mad at me, that I was never good enough, that I, I'd never read my Bible enough, I'd never pray enough. Uh, you know, God forbid I do something wrong, commit some kind of sin, look at a girl wrong or something like that. You know, man, I just beat myself senseless right going to hell going to hell you know i mean we were even told that they were trying to scare us when we started getting our driver's license you know that that um that if we sped we were breaking the law which was a sin and that that god would abandon us get out of the car and we were on our own at that point you know and so but again remember that the baptism of the holy spirit was so real and such an impactful experience in my life that um that i bought into, uh, you know, what my Pentecostal brothers uh, were telling me uh, about my salvation. And so, um, all through uh, middle school, you know, high school, uh, you say, what were you doing in middle school and high school? I was carrying a big old Bible to school, okay? I mean, I was, I was that nerd, all right? But anyway, um, I was pretty serious about these things, right? And, and, and man, I could argue the horns off of a billy goat. And uh, when it came to the Bible, I'm not proud of that. I'm just telling you, right? I, I tell folks my, drug of, my former drug of choice was Pentecostal legalism. And, um, and I was addicted, man. I'm telling you, I was addicted. And, um, and so I started out on the, on, the, on the other side, the wrong side of this discussion. I told you last week that I've had people get mad at me and leave Heritage over these things. And I kind of felt sorry for them because I knew their argument against what I, pro I was preaching better than they did, right? So I don't, I don't say that arrogantly. I'm just telling you. Um, I started out on the wrong side, the other side of this discussion. Um, and um, so what I mean by that is I started from the position and belief that you could lose your salvation. That's what I believed. I believed that for a lot of years. I believed you could lose your salvation. And the harder I studied and worked to prove my position right, the more convinced I became that I was wrong. Okay. Now, why am I telling you all this stuff? I'm telling you all this stuff because... I. I'm a non-denominational pastor. I'm, I'm not carrying anybody's water but the Holy Spirit and, 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 and my Savior, my Lord. Uh, in other words, I don't, I, you know, nobody's going to call me on the carpet. I'm not going to get a letter from headquarters or anything like that, okay? 
I just want the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Truth's what sets you free. Life, what's keep, lies what keep you in bondage. Being deceived, believing something's not true is, is what keeps you locked down and, and unable to live your best life, okay? So um, the more I studied, the more I looked, the more I realized, you know, um, that, uh, that the Bible truly does make uh, an undeniable case for this with one exception. So now you're going to understand why I, I just briefly went over that part about test trials and temptations. Okay? Because you know you break it down, you break it down. Even the passage where the Holy Spirit showed me that it was God venturing Abraham, um, not trying to find out what he was made of. Okay? Um, but then that last passage was in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and, and eventually even that understanding came. But when, when it when it boiled down to, um, you know, the, 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 the question and answer of, of salvation, is it eternal, can you lose it, so forth and so on, um, it, it basically came down uh, to two main passages for me. In, in, two main passages in the sense that, boy, these two verses, these two sets of verses really seem to contradict the idea of a salvation that's eternal. In other words, they seem to support those two passages more than any others. They seem to support the idea that you, in fact, can lose your salvation. That you can be saved and that you can go into an, I guess it would be an unborn again state. <laughs> See, it don't, it don't even work, right? <laughs> you could like no longer be born. No, that don't work, right? So, um, but again, they seem to support that side of it. Okay. And so remember, I started out on that side thinking that you could and arguing with people that you could uh, lose your salvation. And so those were verses that I was really well versed in. Okay? And so I began uh, to, to break, in, you know, break these verses down and look at them uh, uh, very closely. Okay? Now, let's go, praise God. So the two passages are found in Hebrews 6 and 1 Corinthians 6. So Hebrews 6, 1 Corinthians 6. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Um, thank you, Jesus. Um, let's, let's read Hebrews. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Amen. Let's do that because it... Yeah, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Praise God. 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll begin at verse number 9. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 9, all right? And um, I, I apologize again with the 13-minute delay in beginning. Uh, we're getting close to 8 o'clock. Um, I, uh, I will start with Hebrews 6 um, next Wednesday night, all right? And I'm not trying to leave you hanging like some bad sitcom or something with a cliffhanger at the end, but... Um, I want to be able to, to really uh, have the time to dig into that. And, and it's going to take me close to an hour uh, at least to really uh, uh, show you what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to us in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, all right? Um, so let's go, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. This one's a little briefer, a little shorter, and, um, and we'll finish with it tonight, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's begin at verse number 9, all right? 
So verse number 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So, wow. I mean, right there you have it, Pastor Mark. Um, you know, you're coming up in here saying that somebody gets born again, but, um, you know, the unrighteous not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, fornicators, that's people who have sex outside of the bonds of holy matrimony. Idolaters, man, that's, that's anybody who puts anything uh, in their life ahead of God. I and mean, we make an idol out of our job, we make an idol out of a, a relationship, we can make an idol out of money. Um, we can make an idol out of a bass boat. We, we can make you know, any, an, idol, an idol is anything that you put uh, between you and God. If you think you're not an idolater, <laughs> practice idolatry because you don't bow down to some statue you know, three times a day or something like that, that's, that's not what idolatry is, right? It's anything you put uh, ahead of God establish more importance um, in, uh, in your life than him, okay? Um, so an adulterer is, uh, is uh, sexual relations between uh, two people uh, when at least one of them is married uh, to somebody else. So it differs from fornication. Uh, homosexuality, uh, this is when people of the same sex or what gender, what have you, uh, participate in sex. Sodomites, same thing. Um, thieves, that's somebody that steals. Um, covetousness. This is, covetous is, is, doesn't mean you steal, but it means, you know, you want something that somebody else has. Again, this is serious stuff. Drunkards, um, revilers, extortioners. And so right here you have it, Pastor Mark. The Bible plainly says uh, that, um, that these folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So, again, on the surface, on the surface, it seems like this would make a case that, you know, if, if we practice any of these behaviors, then uh, commit any of these sins. Um, and, and isn't it funny how we, we tend to categorize sin? You know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, I, 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 may, I may lust after uh, my neighbor's Corvette, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to have sex with his wife. You know, we, we, we tend to um, categorize these things. But, but again, it says um, that, you know, people who practice these things not going to inherit um, the kingdom of God. Well, see, in this case, there, the, the couple of misunderstandings are, um, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember what we talked about the last several weeks, that um, we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Let, me, let me say it another way. My righteousness is not based upon my works. Now, if you're new to this study, you're probably going, man, that's a flimsy argument, except for we spent six hours in the Word of God, you know, at least explaining um, our righteousness and what our righteousness is based upon and that it's not based upon our performance and it's not a state of doing, it's a state of being. It's something you've been made. It's something that you've become, right? So he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I'm not unrighteous. Even if I do things that are not considered righteous actions. Remember, my good behavior can't make me righteous any more than my bad behavior can make me unrighteous. Okay? 
All right? But now, notice that um, uh, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. What does justified mean? It means to be made righteous. But you were made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Okay. Now, listen, if, if your mind's made up that you can lose your salvation and you're not going to even allow the Holy Spirit to try to show you something here, then, then amen, I just pray for you tonight. But if, if you're on the fence about this, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what is really being said here. See, we look at so many of these verses through a preconceived religious lens. In other words, we remember, I'm going back to it, I, I was, I'm not saying it's the right way to do it, but I already had my mind made up, and I was just simply searching the Scriptures to find more ammunition, to argue it harder, and to make myself look more uh, spiritual and, and smarter than everybody else and all this other stuff, right? But again, I mean, you just see the overwhelming biblical, again, irrefutable, indisputable uh, verses that speak of our salvation. And if Adam's sin made us sinners, then how much more does Jesus' obedience make us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? And so notice, he's saying, and such were some of you. In other words, he's saying not just that, and this is where a lot of folks get, get you know, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a choke point for them. All right? Remember, there's a difference between... Um, Someone who is a sinner, right? You're not a human doing, you're a human being, okay? So we think that if, if, if anyone, you know, commits one of these sins, that it makes them that. But notice, he's saying that such were some of you. Not just that they, that they committed fornication, but that they were fornicators. Not just that they... Um, committed the sin of idolatry or, or drunkenness, but that they were drunkards. In other words, this was their identity. This was their nature. He says, and such were, past tense, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay? Now, this was clearly, this letter, these words were clearly written to the church at Corinth. What does that mean? It means they were written to men and women who have already been born again. Clearly written to born again people. Now, praise God. I don't have the whole scripture in here, but he calls them brethren. Okay? He calls them brethren. He addresses them as brethren. So, in other words, again, just further solidifying that he's talking to people who have been born again. So what's going on? We have men and women who have been born again. Man, a revival broke out in Corinth. You've got a city that has never had Jesus preach to them. The Apostle Paul goes in there and preaches to them, and, and it's, it's revival wildfire. I mean, the church is growing into the thousands. People are getting born again and spirit-filled right and left, so much so that, that you know, much of what we have as far as instruction about uh, speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit comes by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, all right? Okay, but now notice what's happening. These brothers and sisters who once were these things were still struggling in these areas where their flesh is concerned. 
He's not saying that they weren't born again because they were still struggling. He says, look, this is, this is who you once were. You're not, you're not an idolater anymore. You're not a fornicator anymore. You're not a covetous person anymore. You don't have to covet what somebody else has, much less steal it from them. You're born again. You're a child of God. You're an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus. You've been washed. You've been set apart. You've been made righteous uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Th this is not who you are anymore. Remember, your behavior will always line up with what you believe to be true about yourself, even if what you believe to be true about yourself isn't the truth. So he's addressing their behavior. Does their behavior need to be addressed? Absolutely. And if I'm doing any of these things and you're doing any of these things, then my behavior needs to be addressed and your behavior needs to be addressed. But it doesn't mean that God's walked away from us. It doesn't mean that He's turned His back on us. He turned His back on Jesus when Jesus became the, the propitiation for all of this mess so that He wouldn't have to turn His back on you and me when we still struggled as His children in some of these areas. Oh, praise the name of the living God. That's why He says He's not ashamed to call us brethren. So, they were clearly struggling in these areas of sin, or else He would not be addressing these things. You say, well, Pastor Mark, He clearly says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and, and they're, they're deceiving themselves if they think that they will. Alright? So guess what? Not to offend you, but you've just made a classic mistake. And the classic mistake is to associate any mention of the kingdom of God in the Bible with going to heaven when you die. It's not what he's saying. See, again, that's, that's where we've, we've, we've become so narrow-minded and so narrow-focused when it comes to our salvation because we think of salvation as Jesus forgiving us for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. And yes, He bled to death naked on the cross to secure your eternal destination. But even, even greater, I say greater, but in addition to, maybe a better way of saying it, but in addition to Him securing your eternal destination, He bled to death naked on that cross so that you could have His best, so that you could live every day of your life in victory on planet Earth. Praise the name of the living God. So what is this word? So usually there's always a key word that, that if you'll embrace the meaning of that word, it'll help unlock and unravel the rest of the verse. And so, in this passage, the word inherit means to take possession of what belongs to you already. To take possession of what belongs to you already. That's what it means to inherit. Okay. So see, we read this, uh, we, we see this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit uh, the kingdom of God? Right? And then he talks about, the you know, born-again believers who are still struggling in areas of, of, of their flesh and temptation and sin, right? And so we point to this verse and we say, see, these people aren't going to heaven. They're, they're, they're going to hell uh, because they've committed some of these things. Because, because again, we, we, we leave out the, the verse that says, and such were some of you, but that's not who you are anymore. You're not unrighteous anymore. You've been made righteous. And as we awaken to our righteousness, right? So that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, awake to righteousness. Amen. So in other words, realize, come to the awareness of who you are. Uh, and that fornication doesn't look good on you anymore. But here's the thing. He's saying that if we, if we get so caught up in, in the things of the flesh, that those things are going to prevent us 
from laying hold of possessing what has been given to us to experience and enjoy right here, right now, in this life. Not talking about inheriting the kingdom and going to heaven. Those things don't mean the same thing. Remember Jesus said, there's people standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom come in its fullness. Amen. He's talking about His kingdom coming to the earth, not us going to heaven. See, we get so caught up in, in going to heaven uh, when we die that we lose sight of what, what the gospel is really about. It's not just about getting you into heaven, but it's about getting heaven into you. It's about you, uh, kingdom coming, and, and God's will being done right here, right now, on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed. Come on now, anybody been washed? Anybody been set apart, sanctified? And remember, when we were sanctified, how long were we sanctified for? What did Hebrews tell us? By one offering of Himself, He has sanctified us once and for all. He has sanctified us forever. Hebrews 10 explains it even further. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Spirit, soul, and body, three-dimensional beings, the way you understand this. But He who began a good work in you, my friend, is going to be faithful to complete it. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, Jesus said He'll live in you forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, amen. I hope this is making sense to you. Let me, let me plant this one last thought, and then I'll pray, okay? And this really and truly was it's such a simple revelation that I was blinded to for so many years, um, but it really, really changed my understanding of the book of Hebrews. And that is all the other letters in the Bible, Romans written to the church at Rome, Corinthians written to the church at Corinth, both letters. Um, so every letter in the Bible is either written to a church, born-again people, or written to some other born-again individual, Philemon, these kinds of things, right? Okay. Except for the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an open letter to the Hebrew people. The book of Hebrews is written to born-again people, but the book of Hebrews is also written to Jewish people who experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus, but have not yet mixed faith with what they heard and received Him as their Messiah, received Him as their Savior. So because of that, listen to me very carefully, because of that, the Holy Spirit, see, the book of Hebrews is written uh, many years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? So a lot of those folks, in those, in those days, you know, it, it, for a man to live to 30 was a pretty big deal. Lifespans weren't like they were now. Okay? And so a lot of the people that had experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus and had not yet accepted Him as their Messiah, them folks are already, already gone. A lot of them are are you know, still alive. And so you see the Holy Spirit breathing through the writer of Hebrews this, this effort to try to convince them that Jesus is indeed the true Messiah and that just having heard Him speak or just having had Him heal one of your children or cast the devil out of your crazy uncle or something like that, that, that doesn't mean you've received the gift of salvation that He came to offer. So th this, is, this is part of, a big part of unlocking what appears on the surface to be uh, confusing verses and, and, and verses that seem to contradict the idea that once we're born again, um, we can somehow lose our salvation, right? It's because 
the assumption is he's talking to people who've already received salvation when the reality is he's not talking to people who've been saved. He's talking to people who, who tasted the heavenly gift. That's a key phrase there in Hebrews 6. They tasted the heavenly gift, right? Well, guess what? Um, the 12 spies tasted the fruit of the promised land. But they didn't, they didn't mix faith with what God showed them there. And they never received. Joshua and Caleb did, but the rest of them did not, right? So people who tasted of the earthly ministry of Jesus, but never called upon him to be saved. And so, again, I'm, I'm really excited. I was excited about doing it tonight, but I'll be even more excited to break a lot of that down for you on next Wednesday. Know that you love. Know that we're having in-person services um, uh, on uh, Sunday mornings at 1030 and um, having a great time together. We're, you know, we're social distancing, that sort of stuff. But of course, we're just not out of fear, just being wise. And uh, um, hey, not to end this on a sad note, I think some of you know this already, but um, our dear sister uh, Annette Knowles went home to be with the Lord uh, on yesterday. Um, she uh, fell asleep in this world and woke up uh, in the next uh, with her Lord and Savior and her, and her beloved uh, Lonnie and her mom and her brother and others that have, have already crossed over. Um, man, she was not just faithful to this church, and I'll talk some of this about this uh, at a later date, but um, her and Lonnie were among the first folks back in the cabinet shop that ever came to Heritage and, of course, been with us all these years. And, and um, So part of me is sad. The, the earthly, fleshly part of me is, is sad, but um, the inward man is rejoicing. We'll miss our sister. She would have been online tonight. Some of you might be wondering if you didn't know that she'd crossed over, right, that um, she would be online making comments on Facebook as the class progressed. And so um, let's finish this out by praying uh, for her family and for our family of faith uh, during this time of transition. Father, we love you. Thank you for what we've heard tonight, the things that you're showing us. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, but the Holy Spirit, you're our teacher, and we just trust you to take these things and impart them into people's hearts and lives and minds, Father. Lord, we uh, thank you for every memory we have of our brother Lonnie and our sister Annette Knowles. And, um, we pray for uh, her family. We pray for her children, Father, her grandchildren. Uh, Lord, specifically for April and Jonathan and, and Alex, Father, and their families. And, and Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that um, we have a, a hope uh, and a confidence uh, in, um, in where she is and that we will see her again and that you have more than a hundred-year plan for our lives. So thank you for your peace that, that passes all understanding, for the comfort of your Holy Spirit, Lord, with, with uh, Lonnie and Annette's families. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for good things to come for them and for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have a blessed evening. Good things coming. We'll see you on Sunday.